Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our first scripture reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 11. Deuteronomy, the seven, uh, the second giving of the law, is a uh, reminder of all that God has done to bring the people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And uh, as uh, this is Moses' address to them, as they begin to go into the land to possess it, uh, these uh, words come to the people as an exhortation not to ever forget all that God has done or to think that it is their own hand that has done it. Verse 6 through verse 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are out of the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes that I command you today. And our scripture for this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. But, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, we would pray that as you have sent your Holy Spirit and inspired the words that we have read and sung and prayed and thought, 
that the same Spirit that caused them to be written would also illuminate them to our hearts, that we may have the eyes of our hearts open to behold the width and breadth and depth and height of the glory of Christ, to which all these words speak. So may we, O Lord, be led as your people to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Guard us from deception of our own heart. And may the truth shine through us in a dark and twisted world. In Christ's name we pray. And amen. What do we usually mean when we say something's biblical? That's biblical, we say. Well, you know, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean, first of all, uh, it can mean that something's in the Bible. Cain slew Abel. That's in the Bible. Um, It can mean that it is something... That is in accordance with biblical precept. Forgive each other. That's a biblical precept. That can mean that. We throw around the word biblical a lot because we're Bible people, or we should be anyway, and and it's important for us, I think, to drill down to just what we mean when we say it. There are levels, I think, of what biblical means. And I I, I want to uh, uh, put to you an extra or a a more... uh, 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 a more profound or perhaps deeper meaning of this. Biblical, and how we're going to speak about it in the next few few minutes or so, is, is something that can be used to describe things which can only be believed and followed and not humanly grasped. They are biblical precepts which can only be understood by what the Word of God says. Um, For instance, um, a lot of people will say, well, it's biblical to have delegation in authority. I mean, didn't Moses delegate his authority at the behest of his father-in-law when he was judging all the people? So, so delegation of authority, that's a biblical thing. Yes, but it's also a common sense thing. When you look at the picture of God and his glory in the temple in Isaiah 6, you are struck with some picture that you will never see in anywhere else. There is no place that is found other than in the Bible, and you are struck with the fact that Isaiah 6 is the way to believe about God's glory and His righteousness. His glory fills the temple, that a man who is sinful stands and looks upon it and is brought down to himself, and this is a biblical thing. There's nowhere else that we find such things common sense. It is a revealed truth and only understood in that kind of sense of being revealed. Truly spiritual things, facts about God, that He is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He is holy, that He is the way of life, that there is many things about Him which can only be understood by what the Bible says and is not understood by some reasoning of man. This is the level of biblical that we want to talk about today. 
The nature of some idea or act of God which is only biblical is what we're talking about. And that thing that we're talking about today are some things we find here in these verses in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12. through 12. Um, Paul had begun the chapter with the idea, and it's pretty clear, that the New Covenant ministry had been a revealed ministry. It had been a, a ministry revealed uh, that it was something quite different than what people would ordinarily craft for themselves if they were going to um, be left to themselves to kind of think up of how they would do something. This is completely different when Paul comes along. The ministry of the New Covenant is not about force or might or, or, or the spears and chariots of armies of the world. It was not about walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God with clever slogans or, or uh, uh, giving a persuasive argument using human terms, but by the manifestation of the truth Commending, him, commending ourselves, Paul says, to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul had come up against what was uh, to be so-called movers and shakers, uh, those who had amassed for themselves great recommendations of others, who, who walked around with the kind of confidence that comes from the earthly recognitions that we normally find to be very important in this world. But rather than manipulate the Corinthians with pithy slogans, with approaches based on marketing or common sense, the apostle of the new covenant is preaching Jesus clean and true, unapologetically and often. This is not what Paul's opponents did. Avoiding craftiness like they were using. Focusing on truth not the one who says it, but what is said. The package by which the truth of the gospel comes by the ministry of the apostolic servant, Paul, is one that comes, that concentrates on the message, not the messenger. It is not Paul that is preached, but Christ Jesus as Lord. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what is meant by biblical in its most strongest terms. It is not something that is of common sense, of human origin, of human generation. It's not what's in the jar. It's, I'm sorry, it's not the jar. It's, uh, it's, it's what's in the jar. My my daughter, I'm always con uh, we always have this problem in our house. Um, I don't know if you uh, have, a, uh, have, have a, a fondness for this particular food stuff in your house, but um, we acquired a taste for something called Nutella when we were living in Germany. That's some good, I see some, some, some nodding heads here. Okay, that's some really good stuff. You know what the problem with a Nutella jar is? It's not clear. See, my daughter... She likes it just as much as I do. And she'll empty the jar and she'll put it back. <laughs> empty. And I'll go, I'm the king of the house, you know, and I go and I, I read and it's empty and I'm like, oh, you know, and we got to go get more Nutella. Well, the Nutella jar appears to be there. It's all, it looks what it, like it's what it's supposed to be and you reach for it and you discover there's absolutely nothing in it. That is the world's gospel. 
It looks like it'll work wonderfully. It looks good. It looks just like it's supposed to, but when you pick it up, there's nothing but air. Nothing of substance in it. Biblical. The biblical gospel. It's not concerned merely about the jar. Of course, the jar has to be the jar, but, but also what's inside is much important. Our purpose today is to reason and think biblically about the surpassing power of God. Because this is a biblical term. It has nothing to do with appearance or ability or titles. Um, I, have, I, have, uh, I have preached this sermon before um, and to one of my uh, uh, to uh, to a group of folks, and I had a young lady come up, and she asked me, you know, I, I, I'm going to say this just not to be impressed with you, or not for you to be impressed with me, but just as a, an illustration. I, um, I am a I'm a retired colonel in the army. I, I was a chaplain for uh, 23 years, and I'm line officer for another 10. So I'm I'm, I'm a colonel and a chaplain. Um, I am a professor at a seminary. I have a doctorate. Ooh, right? Huh? Okay. And I've got all of these wonderful titles. And she says, um, what am I supposed to call you? And I said, well, I don't know. I, she said, well, you're, you're doctor this, you're professor that, you're colonel this, you're chaplain that, you're pastor this, you're reverend that. And I'm like, how about just clay popped? Because it is the treasure in jars of clay that matters, not the jar itself. See, God did not choose to put the treasure of the gospel within people who were outwardly the best. In fact, that's exactly what he tells them in Deuteronomy. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest or the best or the most logical choice to be my people. I chose you just for the opposite reason. So that, just like with Gideon there, and, and with the Midianites, and, and with, uh, with the twelve apostles who were chosen from the hick backward areas of, 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 the, of the nation of Israel, I chose you because there's no doubt God's working in you, because look at you. There's nothing to recommend you. There's nothing outwardly obvious about your power. Your power doesn't come from anywhere else. So, titles aside... It is whether or not the gospel goes forth. It is not about the message, messenger, but the message. So the surpassing power that God is talking about here, that, that the word of God is talking about here, is about taking up the surpassing power which requires reveling and resting in things like the world sees as weakness, as humility, as suffering, as self-denial. As, and biblical thinking is saying this, God's surpassing power doesn't look like the world's power. It looks completely different. In fact, any imitation of the world by the church always turns out to be some embarrassing blasphemy which insults the glory of God and lays open the gospel to great criticism and derision. Now, the, the, what he's talking about here, about his own surpassing power, is to understand it he gives us four reversals for us to understand his surpassing power. Four reversals to understand his surpassing power. What it is like, the biblical notion of God's surpassing power revealed in four reversals. All right, I've given you that proposition three times now. The biblical notion 
of God's surpassing power revealed in four reversals. The first of those reversals in verse 7. The possession of treasure, treasure by earthen vessels. But, starts that word. But what? Well, it continues what verse 6 said. That there is a new creation. That there is a, a, a light shining of darkness. Just as God has created from lightness from dark, so also has he created his people from nothing. The treasure that he's talking about is the gospel, the new, the new covenant ministry, the, the, the message of Christ, the cross, the resurrection. This is all permanent, life-giving, not temporary, condemning like the old covenant. The reversal is such a treasure that it is common to think of it as being surpassing any kind of uh, uh, limit whatsoever. Clay pots, you see, in the old, uh, in this era, um, the kind of clay pots talked about here, the ostraca, they're called, um, these kind of clay pots, they were kind of like the hefty bags of the day. All right? Now, you're going to pick something to put a treasure in. Um, let me ask you something. You're going to put your, your crown jewels in a hefty bag? Are you, are you going to put uh, a steak dinner in a hefty bag? Or pork chops? Um, are you going to put what is valuable, so valuable that it's the most valuable thing, you put it in a hefty bag? No, that, that is exactly what clay pots were. They were garbage bags. That's all they were. They were, they were something that could easily be broken and, and nobody would worry about it. They were not made with particular skill or strength. They were not expensive. They were cheap. The what God is saying is that he's entrusting to us, in us, a valuable treasure to a weak vessel such as would normally carry garbage. In other words, to show that his surpassing power is real and not due to the, to the, to the jar itself, he entrusts this power to those of us who are as, well, destructible. This is an old lesson. You know, we find this all through God's acts. Um, we, did, we did read in Deuteronomy 7 this very thing. Uh, Judges chapter 7, when Gideon's company is whittled down to just those few people. Um, it is Gideon's company, there's no doubt, that is God's power. It's not because uh, they were the greater of the company at, at war between the Midianites and them. Also, 1 Samuel 16, 7, God looks at the outward side of the man, but the Lord looks at the heart. Going through all of the other children of Jesse, he says these these strapping young men are not the ones. It's the other one. It's the smallest one. It's the one with the least strength. The apostles, um, blue collar, white collar, uh, backwater, uneducated. It is also salvation as well. Salvation does not go to those who work hard and do the right thing and garner God's pleasure by, by, for, by keeping all of the law. Lest anyone think it was the power of man. Lest anyone think to give glory to anyone else, Paul certainly had his detractors. But biblical thinking here turns the insults of the critics of Paul and, uh, into a badge of genuineness. The fact that Paul is the least likely, the one who is constantly in trouble, one who has constantly uh, been uh, subjected to great persecutions, the one who is, who is the least respectable among them, the one who has laid himself bare, 
the one who has not preached himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and him servants for their sake, it is unto such a man that he has affixed the treasure of the gospel. Unlike the spoilers who had come to usurp what Paul had done, Paul has no intent on building a legacy. He sought no one's recognition but God's and preached no other gospel but the gospel of Christ. Um, when uh, a friend of mine was recently installed as a pastor in, uh, in Wisconsin, um, is, uh, one of the other members of the presbytery gave him a book. Um, I forget exactly what the book was. That's not even the important part. But inside the book, the man had written just a few words. He says, and I'm, gonna not, I don't, I'm not going to tell you who this is. He says, hey, he says, remember three things. Preach, die, be forgotten. The idea that we are to be uh, amassing for ourselves a bunch of recognition is completely outside of the nature of biblical power. For biblical power is not the kind that sits over others as the, uh, as the bishop of Rome is carried about by men. Uh, no. He's the one who, who walks in the street, who is among others, who puts himself at risk for others. Later, Paul would say it outright. Validity is not from man's approval, but from God's. He says even in 2 Corinthians 10, We are not bold to class or compare ourselves with others who commend themselves, who measure themselves by themselves. Read that Oscar nominations, right? Okay. It is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he who the Lord commends. Uh, the great reformer John Knox once said, One man with God is a majority, no matter what opposition applies. One man with God is a majority. This way of God has always been his way. The ones of humble trust are the ones approved by God. The ones who are selfless are the ones who are really exalted. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. So the possession is not ours then, is it? In fact, that's exactly what Deuteronomy 7. I made you my possession, he says. The possession is the gospel possessing us. We common vessels are of no value of ourselves but it has pleased God to place in us the treasure of the gospel, and that makes us of worth greater than we can ever measure. For we have eternal worth if the gospel lives in us. We have eternal worth if the gospel goes forth from us. We have eternal worth if the gospel is multiplied in us. So whose ministry is it? Is it Paul's ministry? Is it, is it the church's ministry? No, it is God's ministry. It is Christ's church, Christ's people, Christ's heart, Christ's message. Marvel that anyone should listen to us. Us who are no more fancy than a clay pot, that they do listen, that they do hear, that they do come, is a testimony to the surpassing power of God, showing the reversal of being the treasure in an earthly vessel. So that's the first of the reversals. The second of the reversal is the preservation of his own in face of opposition. Took down to verses 8 and 9 of this passage. 
As you go down to 8 and 9, you start to see a bunch of reversals, a bunch of opposites. Right? Verse 8. Boy, my bifocals. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. So afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. There is, in this understanding, in the face of all opposition, he loses no uh, assurance that God is the one at work in him. Fellow Clay Potts, our breakable and common selves will fail if we rely on them to endure the trials of this world. We are told, hey, grit your teeth and just bear up under it. Suck it up, buddy. Deal with it. No, 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 no. In this world, we have been promised that we will have tribulation. But we're to rejoice not because we've been given the tools to endure them, but we're to rejoice because of the one who has overcome the world. Paul's opposition was part of his call. He, he, when he was called, he says, he must suffer greatly for my name. Affliction and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments, hunger and sleeplessness are things perhaps none of us have ever experienced for the gospel. But they are realities that lay before us and uh, are possible at any time. Previously in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul was talking about being roughly treated and homeless. Again, later in chapter 11 of this book of 2 Corinthians, He's going to, this long list of physical hardships that Paul endured, he's going to recount to his readers. And, and he says, this is not for me, but for the sake of those I serve. It's for the sake of Christ. Point being that from every side and even in his own soul, Paul's own soul, he was pressed down, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down but not crushed. He was perplexed but not in despair. He was at his wit's end without a way through, not understanding what he would do, but he knew that because he served Christ, it did not matter. It would be him who sustained him. He was hunted, abandoned, down but not out. Paul's victory was not in escaping persecution, but in enduring it, bearing up under it, seeing suffering not as an affliction, but as a badge of sonship. For he loves to chastise us, that he may humble us, and in humbling us, exalts us. Paul's enemies would say, look at this guy, Paul. On the run always, he's poor, badly clothed. He's got he's to be a leather worker just to, just to support himself. He doesn't have the kind of qualifications we do he's constantly in trouble Paul says that's the kind of man God works through not the proud, the comfortable the rich, the one who loves to be on the covers of magazines but the obscure the humble the surrendered to power of God in Christ, Paul was fearless because what he carried was indestructible not himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and he a clay pot for Jesus' sake. Even if he was to die in this fight, the glory lay in the fact that he would have the eternal glory of Christ in his death. So we see these, first of all, two displays 
of God's surpassing power shown in reversals. One reversal of, of putting a treasure in a clay pot. The second one is preserving his own in, in the face of some of the worst opposition ever. Thirdly, and this is a very important one, the portrayal of the union with Christ's death as true life. So, so we talk about being unified to Christ's death as being not a death but a life. If we are unified to Christ's death, we are also unified to his resurrection. This is a reversal. Always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul didn't seek to preserve his own life, but to lose it for the sake of Christ. The life of a disciple is a death to oneself. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If we will have life, then we must die to ourselves first. Paul, I've gone so long about this, but my, one of my favorite verses of Paul comes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The Holy Spirit, who brings us to conviction of sin, also by faith unites us to the death of that sin in the new life of regeneration. So that by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, Paul would later say, in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. No doubt the Corinthians read the dizzying language of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 10, uh, uh, two, uh, 4, 10 through 11, um, and it was a difficult thing to read. You know, Corinth, Corinth was uh, an uppity-up place. I mean, it was a, it was a up-and-coming place. It was a big, important city. It was... It was, boy, it was like the, the major leagues. It was important to be on top, to be the most important, to have the best, shiniest, most expensive. And the reversal that Paul gives them is that even though Paul was fulfilling what God had laid out for him, suffering, the suffering did not lead to death, but to life. And even though it appeared to be death, it was a death to earthly things. As the persecutor of the church... He was dead to Christ. But when Saul died to Saul, Paul lived, the little one. So that the little one would have the life of Jesus shown in his body. And as Paul was down, he was not out. For we who live, he said, are always being given over to death so that the life, resurrection of Jesus, may be shown. The question comes to us all, are you dead to you? Are you over yourself yet? Are you dead to you and what you want? Or is your heart Christ? Um, I don't know if you know who George Mueller was. He was a uh, 19th century, uh, I suppose British. Uh, he was a British citizen, but of German birth. So he was a German fellow, a Christian man who built orphanages all over England. In today's dollars... I don't know, or pounds, I suppose, um, millions and millions and millions of pounds to build what he built it would have taken today. And 
He built these orphanages all over England without a single capital campaign or without a single, not one advertising, not one, um, not one appeal. He just prayed that God would give him the money, and God did. And he was asked later in his life, he says, what's the secret to all this success you have, Mr. Mueller? What, well, how, how did you build all these? He says, you know, the secret is, there was a day that I died. I died to George Mueller, and I was alive to Christ. A man with no glory, desire for himself, and only set on that which is in Christ, was the one whose work will endure to the end because it is Christ's work. Because he has been united to Christ in death and life, and therefore will always have union with his death as a true life, which is true in the gospel. So we see these reversals, the God's surpassing power shown in possession of treasure in, in clay pots, uh, his, uh, the preservation of his own in the face of opposition, and his portrayal of union with Christ as death and true life. And now comes, now comes the, 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 what I like to call the prosperity gospel. All right? This is the true prosperity gospel. All right. Verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He shows prosperity of resurrection life through the gospel of the cross. Verse 12 speaks of kind of a, 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 a in kind of one of those uh, reverse kind of languages, death at work in us, but life, and he doesn't put the words in there, but they're there for emphasis, but life at work in you. I once read somewhere that too many people talk about the gospel in terms of the Good Friday point of view. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think, I think that's a wrong way of thinking. True prosperity, uh, true prosperity, true, true gospel preaching is, uh, is a preaching of death of Christ, meaning that there, it, there must necessarily also be a resurrection of Christ because Christ is preached as alive. So we preach the cross of Christ, we know that Christ is alive, we're preaching really his resurrection. In fact, we preach all of Christ's work together. Nothing can be separated out. So when we talk about his cross, of course we're talking about his resurrection. We're talking about his being poor for our sake so that we might become rich. This is the true prosperity. The riches of Christ's glory. The riches of his grace. The riches that says all the things of this world are now subordinated to the things which are of Christ. The reversal is clear from this little verse's structure. Death is at work in us, that is what? The clay pot, frailty and weakness, death to our own selves, caring about the treasure of the gospel of the cross, means that life is at work in you. Paul leaves that phrase out, but again, the risen Christ is at work in us by the measure of how we are dead to our own selves and alive, alive to the fact that our sin has been taken by Christ to the cross. The reversal doesn't end there. As Paul does in his own ministry, the death at work in him means a life for others. We are to be ministers of reconciliation, he will say, later say in chapter 5. When we serve others first and not us, then we are serving them and serving Christ and serving the life of the gospel. When we are witnesses of Christ and not of ourselves, when we pray for others before we pray for ourselves, when we forgive others even when they don't ask to be forgiven, when we submit to them, 
and to uh, Christ, we diminish ourselves. And when we trust not ourselves, but Christ, then the practicality of service to others is shown forth by the fact that we are not self-serving. And so it is both our salvation and the salvation of others that is in view here. Paul will later tell Timothy, pay close attention to yourselves and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. As you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The connection between members of the body serves the purpose of salvation. This is exactly what is meant by the surpassing power of God. It doesn't look like what the world does. The route to comfort and peace and joy is not indulging of oneself or amassing oneself of the worldly pleasures that are so easily gained, but it is the death of ourselves defined in love shown in the death in the death of Christ. That the death of death occurs in the death of Christ. This leads to the resurrection prosperity that comes from the death and resurrection of Christ, which is ours by God's Holy Spirit, who unites us by His surpassing power, which does not look like what the world says, but is instead founded on the weakness of our soul. For we are poor in spirit when we come to Him, and we receive His riches in the Gospel. Let us pray. Lord, God, uh, who is uh, from age to age supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, may we, who are your people, see the surpassing power and that you have granted us grace in the beloved Jesus Christ. We praise you for the truth of your gospel. We praise you for the forgiveness and mercy and love we are known in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would grow in these things and that would it render us not useless to your service and glory as we live in this all-surpassing power, which is the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.